All right, good morning, everybody. Welcome to Riverwood Church. If I've not had a chance to meet you, my name is Aaron, uh, lead pastor for Riverwood, and I'm really, really glad that you're here with us. Before we jump into our sermon today, just a few announcements. Uh, hopefully, when you walked in, you were given one of our handouts inside of theirs, uh, all of our announcements for today. I just want to highlight a couple of them. Uh, before I do, uh, inside of there is a connection card. If you are a first-time guest, our church family fills that connection card out every week. Uh, we just simply, you know, kind of say we're here and then share prayer requests uh, on there. Uh, if you would like to use that uh, digitally, just use the QR code that's on the front, and uh, you can do the, the same. But for every first-time guest that fills out this uh, connection card, we donate $5 to Compassion International. Uh, Compassion is an organization that has a goal of releasing children from poverty in Jesus' name. They work in local churches all throughout the, the world, giving kids an education, giving them some food, uh, some clothing. But the idea is that if you can change the life of a child, you'll, you'll change a family. And if you change the family, you'll change the community. And if you change enough communities, you'll change the world. And, and so we'd love to just make a small difference in the life of a kid and their family uh, by honoring your presence with us today. So if you're willing, uh, just fill that out. If you're doing the paper copy, just drop it in our uh, giving uh, box on your way out uh, or fill that out digitally, and we will uh, do the same uh, there as well. Uh, if you are giving today as part of your worship, uh, you can do that uh, via text or in the giving box, or uh, you can uh, set that up uh, online. But thank you so much to those of you in the Riverwood family who give to help fuel the mission that God has given us. We are a, a church that has a dream, a desire to help people live like Jesus lived and love like Jesus loved. And uh, it, it just it takes resources to do that. So thank you so much for, for giving towards that. Uh, and as we're finishing up this series today on giving, uh, we also want to just say thank you for giving, not just financially, but what you guys give in your skills, your talents, your influence, and today as we talk about your time. Uh, to those of you who gave for uh, the baby bottle uh, boomerang, thank you very much. It was so cool to come in today and see so many uh, baby bottles uh, out there. If you forgot your baby bottle, feel free to bring it into the office this week. Uh, I'm here most days, Tuesday through Friday. Feel free to drop that off, or you can drop it directly at the Waverly uh, office for alternatives. They meet at Cross Point Church, third floor. They are there on Fridays, I think like 9 to 3 or 4, or something like that. So you can drop it off there. You also, if you want, uh, can uh, use the QR code that's out there on that piece of paper, or you can go on the Alternatives website, website and make a direct donation to them as well if you didn't grab a baby bottle and still want to be a part of this with us. Uh, and then uh, Jake is hosting a worship team shtick. So worship team, plan to put this in your calendar for March 7th, hang out at the Epley House. Uh, uh, just some fun, some food, and then he's going to be sharing a little bit about, about this next year. If you are interested in being part of the worship team, whether on stage with an instrument or voice, or behind the scenes back in tech or uh, let Jake know this would be a perfect opportunity for you to come and begin to get connected and be able to start volunteering and serving uh, there in uh, our worship team. And then I believe I have one more. Yes, all right. Uh, it, we uh, would love to see all of you connect into a growth group. Uh, we currently have three growth groups. We have a growth group that meets immediately after our worship gathering uh, on Sundays. They just meet over in the elementary room. Anyone and everyone is invited to come and be a part of that. If you have kids, your kids uh, go into the nursery and get to hang out and play or watch a little movie as the adults get to uh, take today's uh, topic, the sermon, and go deeper with it. We also have a Sunday night group. Uh, anyone is invited to that, but it is primarily young adults, uh, 
college students and uh, uh, young adults. Um, our uh, college students are all on break today, so that's why you're noticing some empty seats uh, over here. Uh, but be praying for them as they are away on breaks, particularly those for those in the Riverwood family that are part of Hope Overflow. They are doing a tour right now uh, out uh, uh, helping lead worship uh, in, in a church this morning, but then doing some other concerts and, and leading worship uh, throughout the week. Uh, so be praying for our students who are part of Hope Overflow. Um, and then we have a Wednesday night group. Uh, Ed uh, gets to lead that group. They change locations, so you will have to locate Ed, connect with him, and find out where they're meeting. It's, it's kind of like secret church. Uh, you got to figure out where, where it's at, uh, and then, then you show up. Don't tell anyone else, uh, and uh, it's, it's, uh, it's a good, good time. Uh, if you can't make any of those work, would you let me know? We would love to see another uh, growth group get started. Perhaps you would be the one to help us get that going. So uh, if you can't can't do the Sunday afternoon for whatever reason, Sunday night or Wednesday, uh, let us know and we'd love to see if we can't get another group uh, going uh, during the week. Well, to begin the sermon, I'm going to assume that all of you, well, not all, but most of you are familiar with the paradoxical adage, less is more. M most of you heard that? All right. What you may not know is where it came from. Turns out it's from the early 1900s in the arena of architecture and design. Uh, there was a German architect by the name of Ludwig Mies van der Rohe who believed that designing his buildings, both exterior and interior, with a little less decoration made them a little more powerful, a little more appreciated, and even more enjoyed. Well, his designs were so powerful that his ideas bled into the other arts. For a time, music began to strip back how much instrumentation there was. Uh, artists, painters began to, to change how much they put into their, their work. Fashion designers began to simplify some of their designs because they bought into this adage that less is more. But nowadays, when we talk about this phrase, we rarely talk about it in terms of the arts. We tend to talk about it in terms of life. It's come to mean that having a smaller quantity of something yields a greater quality of joy, living, whatever. It's kind of what was behind the whole Marie Kondo craze of just a few years ago. Did anyone get caught up uh, in that? I did not. I found out about it after the fact. But, but Marie Kondo is this Japanese gal who, who really is into organization. And so she started her KonMari method. And, and basically what you do is... If you look at your stuff, and if this particular thing does not spark joy, you get rid of it. You just start purging. The more stuff you get rid of and only keep the things that bring joy, having less stuff will yield more joy in life. Less is more. But this adage has, has moved into a number of arenas. It, it turns out that, that some businesses try to apply this to, to create sustainable purchasing practices. I've also heard that there are decision-making processes that begin to try to apply this less is more idea. And a number of people try to tell us preachers that less is more. Okay, that didn't get the laugh I thought it might. All right. See, I am, I am not funny. Uh, it's, it's, it's totally fine. But today, we get to apply this less is more adage into another arena of life. We're going to talk about it in terms of time. What we're going to hopefully discover today is that when you realize you actually have less time on this earth than you thought, it will actually yield you into giving more time away. To see it for yourself, I invite you to open up your Bible to Psalm 90. Psalm 
chapter 90. If uh, you didn't bring a Bible with you today, uh, don't worry about it. We're going to be putting the scripture up on the screen. Uh, I just really encourage you, though, stop by our resource table after. Take one of the paper Bibles that's there. That'd be our gift to you. Or feel free to download a Bible to your phone and use a digital Bible. We want you to have a Bible. I just think your learning is going to be far deeper if you're not just relying on these screens, but you actually have it in your hands. Because my, my hope and dream is that you would take some of what we talk about today and it would extend into Monday and Tuesday and every day. So I would love for you to have your own copy of the scripture. So get a Bible into your own hands. As we get ready to jump into Psalm 90, uh, it just seems appropriate to pray. So uh, let us go before the Father. Heavenly Father, we approach your throne of grace with confidence, not because of who we are or what we have done, but because of who you are and what you have done. And Lord, you through your infinite wisdom have written these words in these scriptures for us to learn from, that the truths that you embedded there did not just ring true for the people of that day, but that the, they extend even to ours. And so, Lord, help us to open up our hearts, open up our minds, to hear what you have for us to say, that this wouldn't be just about what I have prepared, but openly what your Holy Spirit has for each and every one of us. No matter where we are at in our spiritual journey, God, I believe you have something for us today. So help us to lean in, to listen, and be open to your leading, your guiding, and your teaching. And it's in Jesus' precious name I pray. Amen. Uh, a couple weeks ago, knowing that I was going to be preaching on time today, I decided to uh, use this topic for my newspaper article. Uh, some of you know that I'm in rotation with nine pastors uh, writing an article for the church page in the, the Waverly newspaper. And so two weeks ago, I saw I was due up and uh, I was like, all right, you know what, let's, let's write about time. And I used Psalm 90, today's passage, as my key verse to drive my point home. So every nine weeks, I have to put together this 500-word uh, uh, article that I kind of feel like no one ever reads. But it turns out this two weeks ago, one person read it and decided to email me. And he emailed me one piece of positive feedback and one piece of, he would call it constructive criticism, but it kind of felt like negative feedback. The positive feedback was that I used reverse psychology. In my article, I said that I knew people wouldn't read my article because it was too long, that they wouldn't take the time to read my article about time. And he said this was very effective because it made him want to keep reading. And so he was giving me kudos for that. But then he said, but you did one thing that worked against you. You see, several of the Psalms have this little preceding note. Uh, it, it's an attribution, sometimes identifying who wrote it and, and what the context is. For instance, in Psalm 51, you get this little note. To the choir master, a Psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. That little note lets you know who wrote it, David, and when he wrote it, it was shortly after Nathan the prophet had confronted him about his adultery with Bathsheba and his unethical treatment in getting Uriah, her husband, killed in battle. And so Nathan pins this whole entire, I mean, not Nathan, David pins this whole entire psalm in there confessing his sin. And when you read that little note, it helps you understand why he's writing as he is. Well, if your Bible's open there to Psalm 90, you'll notice that there's a little note. It just simply says, a prayer of Moses, the man of God. And my email feedback provider said this, 
I would be very surprised that any serious scholar of biblical literature would support your suggestion that Moses wrote Psalm 90 or any other psalm for that matter. Now, it felt a little bit like an underhanded insult. Like, well, clearly you're not a serious biblical scholar. And he's right, I'm not. But it still kind of stung. Now, in his defense, some of those little attributions are, are possibly added later. That some scribes knew who wrote it, but didn't want it to get lost. And so they, they put that in there so that we would know which ones are from David, which ones are for the sons of Korah, which ones are from uh, Asaph. And in this case, wants us to know that this one is from Moses. But my feedback provider basically was just like, but there's no way. Moses lived 1,400 years before the Psalms were ever collected. There's no way something from antiquity lasted that long. That was just some well-intentioned scribe who wanted to give it more legitimacy by saying it was written by Moses. So I got curious. Simple Google search revealed that there are a number of people out there that agreed with my feedback provider, but there were way more that made the same assumption I did that this really is written by Moses. Moses. And some of those were actual biblical scholars. In fact, I found one academic paper written by a guy by the name of Dan Leoy, who truly was a biblical scholar based on the number of degrees he had and, and the way the paper was put together. And in it, it was a whole entire paper all about Psalm 90. And in the first fourth, he gave this incredible, robust defense of why this was written by the Moses. Not, as one com commentator said, written by another guy who just happened to have the same name of Moses. Not by some well-intentioned scribe, as a number of people try to claim, trying to give more legitimacy to it, saying it's from Moses. No, this was the actual Moses of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. That, that because of the language and, and certain internal factors and a number of things around it, Dan was confident that this was the Moses. Now, if some of you believe like my feedback provider that there's no way this was written by Moses, I still think you're going to get some stuff out of today's sermon. I just want you to realize that as we work through it, I will be, I've, I've been convinced by Dan Leoy, I'm going to be referring to this as though it's God writing this through the Moses that we have heard of. What is it that Moses, for his one and only psalm, what is it that he writes? He writes this. Join with me at verse 1. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. <laughs> they are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed, and the evening it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. We, you have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days... Pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70. Or even by reason of strength, 80. 
Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. So here is Moses' one and only psalm. By the way, some scholars believe that he also wrote Psalm 91, that originally it was just all one big combined psalm, and someone later went along and decided, nah, let's just make it two chapters. But he, he has this one psalm that gets kept for all those years, gets put into the canon, and he sounds like a depressed, cranky dude. Right? He, he does not sound to be in a very chipper mood. In, in fact, he makes God even sound like a grumpy curmudgeon. In verse 3, he says, oh God, you return man to dust. In verse 5, you sweep man away as with a flood. They are like a dream that's here and then suddenly gone. In verse 7, for we are brought to an end by your anger, O God. By your wrath we are dismayed. What is up? Why, why is Moses so down, so dour, talking about God as some cranky dude just looking forward to, to wiping us off the face of the earth? If you are familiar with the life of Moses, if you're familiar with his story, think about it for just a moment. The first 20, 30, 40 years were spent in Egypt, being raised to be a great leader, all sorts of you know, pomp and circumstance and wealth, raised in the home of the Pharaoh, and it all comes to an end when he kills an Egyptian soldier, and he flees for his life and spends the next 40 years toiling as a shepherd with sheep in the wilderness. And then after God calls him back to Egypt, and a few exciting weeks of, of plagues and everything else, Moses leads the people out of slavery to now wander the wilderness for another 40 years. But rather than try and take care of bleeding sheep, he's taking care of complaining people. People complain about food, and they have to eat manna every day. They complain about water, and, and God has to provide miraculously at times. They complain about how difficult it is. At times, they even wish they were back in Egypt. And because of their complaining, Moses ends up watching God discipline the people. And over the 40 years, he sees them die of old age, of infection, from snakes, from ground opening up, and people falling in. No wonder, he says, verse 10, the years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. And yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. And yet even here, in this darkest of psalms, shines a bright light. That in the, the blackest of coal lies a bright diamond. What is the diamond of Psalm 90? It's verse 12. So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Back in the early 2000s, uh, there was a professor at Carnegie Mellon University that gained a bit of national fame because he was dying. Now, Randy Posh had been a longtime um, uh, computer science professor at Carnegie Mellon University in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, when at the age of like 45, 46, he was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. 
entered into a long battle with it, fighting against it. And a year after his initial diagnosis, he comes in and the doctors say, we've done everything possible and we can't do any more. And at that point, they gave him three to six more months to live. Well, interestingly enough, he'd already been scheduled to speak at, a, at this series of lectures. It was an annual event. I think it was held at Carnegie Mellon. And, and, and what they would do is they would invite these professors to come in, and the instructions were, for this lecture, we want you to give the lecture as though it was your last lecture ever. In other words, it was an invitation for these professors to bring their best. Like, if you had one last opportunity to stand before your students, what would you teach them? And so they were hoping to get the best from these professors from their field. And they scheduled Randy. And that last lecture was about his last lecture. Because he died 11 months later. I found one source that said at 47, another at 48. But he left behind a wife and three little kids. Now, if you've been paying attention to the story, and you're actually halfway decent at second grade math, you're sitting there going, well, wait, wait a second. He was given three to six months to live, but 11 months later, he passed away? So, like, he beat the doctor's expectations. And he talked about that very thing in a, his graduation speech to the class of 2008 at Carnegie Mellon. Here's what he said. Somebody said to me, when they found out that I had lived past the doctor's projected date of death, wow, so you're really beating the Green Reaper. And I replied, we don't beat the Reaper by living longer but by living well and living fully. For the reaper will come for all of us. The question is, what do we do between the time we're born and the time the reaper shows up? Because when he shows up, it's too late to do all the things that you're always gonna kind of get around to. It's not the things we do in life that we regret on our deathbed. It's the things that we do not. Now, I could not find anything that indicated that Randy was a Christian. And yet he unknowingly began to live out Psalm 90, verse 12. When he suddenly realized that he was going to have far less days than he'd envisioned, he began to use his time differently and more strategically. Now, the iPhone wasn't going to come out for another three months, so he couldn't waste his time doom scrolling. Netflix still was only like mailing out DVDs, so he couldn't just binge watch shows. And yet he still in 2008 could have found ways to just waste his time and be selfish. But instead, he began to find ways to connect deeper with his wife, with his kids, with his friends, with his students, and even with a national audience. That last lecture got turned into a book, which led to a book tour, and he impacted a whole bunch of people with the last bit of time that he had left. By numbering his days, it gave him a heart of wisdom. He had discovered that when he was given less time, he gave more time away. Some of you are familiar with the uh, tombstone illustration. Uh, pastors like myself love using it. In fact, I realize I've actually used this once before. But one day you will pass away. Most likely your body will be put in a coffin and buried six feet underground, and then there will be a tombstone put to mark the spot where your body is buried. On it will be your name, and then there will be a date when you were born and the year that you died. And then between those two dates is a dash. That dash represents your life. 
And that's when most preachers love to say, so what will you do with your dash? But what Moses wants us to realize is that our dash is far shorter than we realize. Most of us live as though we have an endless supply of minutes and seconds and hours. We fritter away time because we've got an endless supply. But what Moses wants us to realize is we don't have an endless supply. In fact, the last three years, the life expectancy in the U.S. has been dropping. It's now down to 76.4 years. Some of you are going, like, over 75? Like, that, that's actually pretty good life. But when you compare that to the way we live, as though we have an endless number of days, 75 years is nothing. As it says in James 4, 14, compared to eternity, our 75 years on this earth are a mist, a vapor, a breath. So why do, why do we live this way? If we only have so much time, if our dash is so short, why do we live as though our dash extends forever? Ecclesiastes 3:11 gives us a hint. It says that God has made everything beautiful in its time, but also he has put eternity into man's heart. When God created Adam and Eve, he did not create them to only live for a short time and then have an expiration date. They were to live forever. And so hardwired into your DNA is eternity. And so no wonder you spend your time as though you have forever because there's part of you that thinks you do have forever. But notice the second half of the verse. Yet God allows us to, to think about this eternity, to live as though we have it, so that the man cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. When we fritter away our time as though we have an endless supply of it, we become blind to what God is doing from the beginning to the end and now. But Moses says when we number our days, when we realize our time is actually finite, we begin to use our time differently, we gain a heart of wisdom and we begin to perceive what God has been doing from the beginning to the end and now. And most people, when they realize, end up making the same decisions that Randy did. They realized, my time is not to be spent doom scrolling on my phone. My time should be given away to others. Now, introverts in the room are really uncomfortable right now because it feels like you're being told that you have to repent of your introversion and convert to extroversion and give all your time to people. God has designed you as an introvert, and that's totally fine. But God did not give you this gift of time so you could go and spend it on yourself and your own comfort. He wants you to use it wisely. And part of that is to find at least one person or one group to whom you can give your time. Now, some of you might start wondering, oh no, is, is Aaron going to start like, you know, twisting my arm? Is this where the guilt trip comes in? No. A number of you are already doing what we're talking about today. You have opened up your fist and you have given your time. For example, if you are a parent, you are giving 
time. I hope you're giving time to your children. Many of you are sacrificing greatly for the sake of your children. You are giving them time. But the question is, are you giving them quality time or are you just giving them enough time so that they survive to the next day? If you're married or you have a significant other, chances are you are giving them time. The same question. Are you giving them some quality time or is it just enough time to make sure that the bills are paid and you know what's on the schedule and this and that? Some of you, you're giving time to a person in, the term of, in terms of care. Maybe an elderly parent, uh, an elderly friend, neighbor, maybe a friend who's battling some mental health, and, and you're being there for them. You're giving them time. Thank you. But sometimes when we're with other people, and it doesn't even have to be in terms of care. So, some of you, it might just be a friend from school, a, a, a roommate. It, it could just be you know, people you hang out with. Sometimes when you're with them and you're giving them time, you're giving them your physical presence while your phone gets your mental or emotional presence. You see, this whole idea of giving time isn't just about being there bodily. It's to be there fully. It means giving someone your eyes, your ears, your heart, a hug, encouragement, a challenge. It's giving them all of you. If you're a follower of Christ, you need to look no further than your Savior, Jesus, because this is exactly what he did. In Luke chapter 8, there's a story of a, a synagogue leader by the name of Jairus who, who has a little nine-year-old girl who is dying. And finally, he reaches a point where he is so desperate, he decides to run to the controversial Jesus. He's heard about the preaching of the Christ, maybe even heard it himself. He's heard about the miracles, maybe even seen one or two of them. And yet, his group of people, the, the Jewish leaders, have questions and concerns about this Jesus. And he finally reaches the point where he doesn't care any longer. He loves his little girl. He wants to save her life. And so he rushes and finds Jesus, preaching to a whole crowd. And he interrupts and asks Jesus, will you come and heal my daughter? And Jesus says yes. Now the crowd gets excited. They're going to get to witness a miracle. And so like a, a big throng, uh, you know, like the paparazzi all around some celebrity, Jesus is making his way through the streets following Jairus. The crowd's all around when suddenly Jesus stops everybody and says, someone touched me. And the disciples kind of look at him like, uh, of course someone touched you. Like everybody's trying to touch you, Jesus. Like you're a celebrity. The crowd's all around. And he's just like, no, 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 no. Someone touched me and I felt healing power go out of me. Now suddenly the, the crowd stops. Like, did we just hear that? Like, did the miracle just occur and, and we weren't aware of it? And so everyone starts looking around like, who was it? What happened? And suddenly this older woman falls to her knees before Jesus and confesses it was her. She tells him that she had been bleeding like a constant period for 12 years. Doctors had been unable to stop it. She'd spent all of her, her wealth on it. And not only was she now incredibly poor, but she was now ostracized. Because to have a hemorrhage like that made you ceremonially unclean. So she couldn't go to the synagogue or the temple to worship. 
She also couldn't touch anyone. Anyone else that she touches or touches her, they would become ceremonially unclean. Or if she touched any objects, those things become ceremonially unclean. And so then if someone touches that object, they're unclean. And so she's been pushed to the outskirts of society. And in her desperation, just as desperate as a dad trying to save his little nine-year-old girl, she worms her way through the crowd as quietly, silently as she can, and she does the unthinkable. This unclean woman touches Jesus. And yet in that moment when she touches the fringe of his robe, she's healed. Some people in Jesus' position would look at her and shame her. How could you, as an unclean woman, touch me to now make me ceremonially unclean? By the way, the fact that she's healed means that Jesus did not become unclean. She became clean. Nor did he look at her and go, how dare you? I'm on my way to this important task of helping this little girl who's dying. And you stop everything to do this. How selfish can you be? Instead, he looks at her and gives her his full attention, his full heart, his everything, and says, daughter. This woman might have been older than him, and yet with a term of affection, family, connection, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. And in that moment, he completely restores her, not just physically, but back into the community because he gave her his time. And not just giving her the time of, of you know, oh yeah, okay, well, that was cool. We gotta keep going. He gives her everything. If you're a follower of Christ, you are to live like Jesus lived and love like Jesus loved. You are to give people your full Attention, your full heart, your full time. But I think you valuing those moments will come when you realize you don't have nearly as many of those moments as you think. I'm not saying you can't play games on your phone. I'm not saying you can't enjoy a Netflix show. But I am saying God did not give you this gift of time so that you could just spend it on yourself and your own comfort. He wants you to take your fists and open them up and you give some of your time to those around because that is what is going to make a difference and will actually bring you greater joy. So when you realize you actually have less time than you thought, you will see your time used way better and you will find more joy. Let us pray. So Heavenly Father, I pray that you would help us to know how to give our time and to whom we need to give our time. That we would be like Christ. That, that whoever we're with, we are fully there. That we would not allow ourselves to just be taken away through our phones or through our own worries and thoughts. That, that when we are with people, we are fully with them. Lord, make us people who, who give so generously of, of our heart, of our attention, uh, a hug, uh, a wise word. Help us to be those types because, God, you call us to be a blessing to the world. But, Father God, as, as I sense you calling us to be these type of people, some of us, we are struggling. Right now, what we need is for you to give us some time. And so, Lord, I pray that you might even send someone to us 
that that person would come in to be able to listen, to encourage, to, to, to challenge, to prod us into action, to trust you, to follow you, to give everything to you. So God, right now, we just give you our struggle. We give you our pain. We, we give you the, the worries about our past, our future, that, that relationship, the financial issue, the health crisis. God, we put these things before you. God, as we put these things before you, we need you to give us a heart of wisdom to teach us to number our days and to realize that even these struggles we might be going through, that they are temporary, that they will pass, they will fade, but you remain. So God, help us to put our eyes on you who is eternal and not on these temporary circumstances. May we trust in you, the one who is forever, rather than being blocked by the things of the now. So God, may you work in us, healing us, changing us, strengthening us, giving us these hearts of wisdom so that we might perceive what you have been doing from the beginning, what you are doing through the end, and what you are doing now. So Father, help us to be wise. Help us to number our days. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. To give you an opportunity to reflect, to ponder, to pray connect with God. We want to just uh, create a, a moment for you to do such. So feel free to use the words of this song. Feel free to stay in your seat. Feel free to, to kneel. If you need to stand and sing, by all means do so. This is your time to connect with the Father. As part of that, we invite those of you who are Jesus followers to include the communion elements. Jesus Christ went to a cross to die for our sin. He gave of his body. He gave of his blood. He gave his all. And so because he gave his time and his everything for us, we do this in remembrance of him. And so if you so desire as part of your reflection to bring these, these elements in, just remember that that bread represents his body, which was broken for you. That cup, the juice, is his blood, which was shed for the forgiveness of your sins. And take those into you to say that his story is part of your story. His life is now a part of your life, and you give everything to him. If, if you're not a follower of Jesus, that's okay. We, we're glad that you are here, and I hope that you will sense God's call for you to give your life to him so that he can redeem your time and use you to be a blessing in this world. But if you're unsure about this whole thing, we're just going to ask that you very respectfully and politely not go to these communion elements. It's not that we're trying to keep something from you. It's that we believe God has something better for you. He wants you in a relationship with him. So I would invite you to stay where you're at and have a conversation. In prayer, ask God, is it true? Did Jesus Christ really come to this earth, God in flesh, live a sinless life and go and die a sinner's death? Did he do this for you? And if the Holy Spirit reveals to you the truth of this story, then may you right there in your seat, in the privacy of your heart, give your life to Jesus. But if you've already taken that step, this is who you are, then would you come? Include these elements into your worship as you pray, as we sing, as we reflect and realize our dash is a lot smaller than we realized. We ask God to help us use our time wisely for his glory. So let us do this now in remembrance of him.